January 20th, 1979. A very tragic day. It dawned with the news that there had been a military operation in El Despertar in the parish of San Antonio Abad. It was at a house frequently used for retreats designed to deepen the participants' Christian faith. Father Octavio Ortiz, along with Sister Chepita, as they call the Belgian sister who works there, was leading a program of introduction to the Christian life for some 40 young men. But at dawn today, the National Guard with a riot squad set off a bomb to break down the door and then entered violently with armed cars and shooting. Father Octavio, when he realized what was happening, got up just to meet his death, as did four other young men. The rest of the group, including two women religious, were taken to the headquarters of the National Guard. We did not learn about the murders of Father Octavio and the, young, and the four young men until the afternoon when their bodies already had been taken to the morgue at the cemetery. Father Octavio's face was very disfigured. It looked like it had been run over and flattened by something very heavy. He was taken to La Auxiliadora Funeral Home along with three of the others. One of the bodies had already been claimed by relatives, but these three had not yet been identified by their families. We had them taken to the funeral home to be prepared and then to the cathedral for the viewing of the bodies. There they would be identified by their families, who then would take charge of them. In the evening, this tragic funereal cortege was taken to the cathedral. A great many people were there. The cathedral was almost full. There were many prayers for the slain and gospel messages preached to the cloud. I got there about 11 p.m. The crowd greeted me with applause. I led an intercessory prayer for Father Octavio and the others, and also explained to the crowd how we would proceed the next day. I invited all of them to come to the 8 a.m. Mass at the cathedral. All the priests will be there, having suspended their normal Sunday schedules, to celebrate this Mass for their brother priest. Sunday, January 21st. The Mass celebrated at the cathedral was beautiful and filled the whole morning. There were more than a hundred priests around the casket of their dead brother, Father Octavio. The other three caskets were there too, those of the young men that the church had arranged to bring there from the cemetery morgue. We could not celebrate the Mass inside the cathedral, so we set it up in the street and the park. At the time for the Mass to start, it was very moving to see such a concentration of people, especially because of the pious way in which the crowd participated in the prayers for the dead. A representative of the Bishop of Cleveland was at my side, and there were other priests from the United States. In my homily, I analyzed the crime perpetrated against Father Octavio and the four who had been sacrificed with him. I called for a rational response rather than resorting to violence and force. I protested this attack on the dignity of our church. I reminded my listeners of the sentence of excommunication destined for those who planned, as well as those who carried out, this crime against a priest. Among the crowd, there were people from all the parishes of the archdiocese, and also representatives of many communities from other dioceses. Father Octavio's casket and those of the other young men were moved back into the cathedral after the Mass so that they could continue to be viewed by the faithful who expressed their affection through prayer and reflection as they filed past the caskets. The community of San Francisco and Mexicanos asked permission to bury Father Octavio's body in their church. 
And after talking over the situation, figuring out how to avoid anything that could provoke a violent situation, we decided that they should move the body secretly. His body belongs to them since it was there that he was ordained, and it was there that he worked during his five-year ministry. I was the one who ordained Father Octavio on March the 3rd, 1974, representing Bishop Luis Chavez y Gonzalez. By afternoon, Father Octavio's body had been moved to his parish of San Francisco in Mexicanos, and I went there to preside over the concelebration. There were 40 priests, and the crowd was huge. The street in front of the church was not big enough to hold the numerous crowd that had come from all over. Because of this, the celebration was held out of doors, and after Mass, the visitation of the faithful to Father Octavio continued with lines that stretched all the way to the furthest stop of the Mexicanos bus line. A truly wonderful demonstration of solidarity, suffering, and love, of surrender to the cause of Jesus Christ. The crowd expressed great affection to the priests and to their bishop, greeting him with applause, kissing his hands, etc. I left there filled with a spirit of satisfaction, thinking how well people respond to those who know how to love them. Father Octavio's body remained on view, until the line of people, which was still very long then, had all entered. That was Professor Irene Hodgson reading an excerpt from A Shepherd's Diary by St. Oscar Romero, and this is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a close look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Inchauskas. Happy New Year to you, and welcome once more to the Liberation Theology Podcast, back with our first episode of 2023. This month marks the two-year anniversary of the show. Thanks for your support. Thanks for listening. The lineup for this year is really special, starting with today's episode on ordained ministries in the church, featuring an exclusive interview with Dr. Irene Hodson. And Irene holds a doctorate in Spanish and Latin American literature, from Purdue University, and currently serves as a professor emeritus of Spanish at Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio. She is the translator of two books by St. Oscar Romero, one his diary, and another a series of daily meditations called Through the Year with Oscar Romero. She also translated the article Liberation Theology and Marxism, by Enrique Dussel, the subject of episode four's conversation with Dean Detloff. It's truly an honor to have Irene with us today. We'll begin with the interview, and then I'll close with a few additional insights on ordained ministries in the church based on José María Castillo's Mysterium Liberationis chapter entitled Priesthood, Episcopacy, and Papacy. Irene, it's great to be with you. Welcome to the Liberation Theology Podcast. It's great to have this conversation. We used to work a few steps away from each other, though now I'm here in Paris and you're in Cincinnati, and it's great to check in with you again. Let's start with a bit of your story. How did you get involved with Central America, Liberation Theology, and Oscar Romero? 
Well, it started before Romero. I actually hadn't heard of Romero until he was assassinated. And when I was an instructor at Ohio State, 81 to 84, I was asked to interpret for a Salvadoran woman, Marta Alicia Rivera, who was the head of Andes, the teachers union. And I said no, but I went and listened to her. And she had been picked up by a death squad and was for dead in the garbage dump. And when she told her story, I thought people need to hear this. And she needs help telling it to people who don't speak Spanish. And those of us who can help should. So I felt an obligation after that. And for many years, I never was able to, to say no when I was asked to interpret. And when I got to Xavier in 86, someone had told me to get in touch with Paul Nitter, who was then in the theology department at Xavier. And the next thing I knew, I was translating for the people in Sanctuary and theology classes at Xavier and for the sanctuary program, and one thing led to another. And it was Paul who started me on my written translation work because he asked me to fix a translation. There'd been a rough translation done of a paper that Enrique Dussel of Argentina had done on liberation theology and Marxism. And I had no idea what I was doing. I learned about liberation theology as I went. I would meet with Paul and say, explain this to me. And just one thing led to another. Paul had me train pieces by John Sobrino, Jesuit in, in El Salvador. And he was one of the Jesuits who, who met often with Romero. And then I got a phone call asking me, did I want to translate or would I translate Romero's diary? And that was because of Paul Nitter talking to Jesuit and Father Jim Brockman. So then I translated Romero's diary and I spent two years with him, the same two years that, that are in the diary. And it may be strange, but I sort of felt for a long time after that, that Romero was telling me what to do next. Something would, I'd think, okay, this is my next project. And then something would just drop in my lap. And that's what happened too when I did the book of the excerpts of his homilies for the 25th anniversary of his death that's arranged as a book of daily meditations. I, I went to El Salvador right when I was working on the diary. And I think it's really important for translation and interpretation to really understand the context, the historical context, the vocabulary. And I ended up being on the board of, of Crispus Christians for Peace in El Salvador. It's just one thing led to another. It was a totally different path than I expected I was going to take. And now I'm finding myself doing interpretations for immigrants, some from El Salvador, from Nicaragua, but from other places, other places as well. So basically, it all became my solidarity work. Thanks so much for that, for sharing your personal engagement. Now let's turn to Romero. Who was Oscar Romero? I, I just want to stick in one other thing first. I realized I didn't mention how this went into my teaching and my work with students and taking students to Central America, particularly Xavier students, both to Nicaragua and El Salvador for many years. So as to who Romero was, he was the Archbishop of San Salvador beginning in 1977. But for the two years before that, he was the Bishop of Santiago de Maria. He was named as kind of, a, as they say, a safe choice because it thought he, people thought he wouldn't rock the boat. The Archbishop before they thought was a little radical. And Romero turned out not to be at all what they expected. I mean, he always said he was conservative. And he argued against the idea that people said that he'd had a transformation. And there's actually a book by two passionist priests, um, Zacharia Diaz and uh, 
Juan Macho, who argued that his transformation began in Santiago de Maria, that there's, they've got a book, In Santiago de Maria, I Encountered Misery. What Romero himself said was it was an evolution. Whether it was an evolution transformation, it happened really quickly. And one of the catalysts was the death of Rutilio Grande. And part of what he did then was, since the press was totally controlled and things things would not be published in the newspapers or be on the radio, that in his homilies, he would talk about the events that he thought people needed to, to know about. And he had a Saturday morning breakfast with a number of people, including John Sobrino and, and uh, Ignacio Ayacurria, who was the rector of the Jesuit University who was murdered in 1989. And he would decide with them what he needed to, 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 to tell the people. And it was very important that his homilies went out on the radio and they started bombing the radio station to keep that from, from going out to the entire country, even though he was the Archbishop of San Salvador. The, the radio homilies went out much wider and folks didn't like that, the folks in power. And eventually they killed him. He was actually murdered by a sharpshooter at the altar while saying mass in 1980. He became a symbol, was called the voice of the voiceless, that while there were so many unnamed but names unknown of many Salvadorans that were killed, Romero came to symbolize that. And Ignacio Ayacuria actually said that with Monsignor Romero, God walked through El Salvador. Irene, you translated Romero's diary into English. What might be one or two captivating details or stories that emerge from that diary? I mentioned the radio. The workers at the radio went on, at the archdiocese and the radio went on strike at one point. And he was very upset about that because that was, he could only seem to be, only be able to see that as impeding his message getting out and not initially to be able to look at whether there was justice in their causes. And there was another instance where he went to an, a, an estate of a rich landowner and gave mass for the people that worked there. And he was very unhappy with the situation and said he was never going to go back. And a friend that was helping me type when I was translating was saying, yeah, but what about those people who weren't going to get mass anymore? And so it, 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 it showed you that he wasn't perfect. He grew tremendously during the time that he was archbishop, but he was still a work in progress. Also in the diary, there, there are many, there are times when different ambassadors from the Vatican, from the U.S., whatever, in the last few weeks before he died, come and ask him to be quiet. I found that very interesting too. Uh, Rosa Chavez talks about some of his assassination actually having been planned in Argentina and the Argentine ambassador approaching, I'm not sure if it was the Argentine ambassador to the Vatican, whatever, at any rate, warning of his assassination. So I, I, it seems like it was leading up to that, that people were saying, be quiet, be quiet, and he wasn't. And that refusal to be silent would lead to his death. We know there was a movie that was made in 1989 by the director John Duygan that starred Raul Julia. And you're watching that movie and with your personal knowledge of the life of Romero, what do you see as being some of the strengths and weaknesses of that portrayal of Romero's life? I think the atmosphere that it creates and the spirit are very accurate. 
I think there's some things that were done for dramatic effect that would never have happened. He was never arrested. He would never have screamed the way he did, screamed at people the way that he did. The He has tension in the movie with the young priests. And that is something that was also in the diary. When priests started getting assassinated in El Salvador, particularly the young priests, he questioned whether they were involved in politics or if they were doing things they shouldn't have been doing. But he investigated and he eventually decided that they were following the gospel and and doing what they should be doing and ended up moving from questioning this to making a statement that if priests are being, if people are being killed in El Salvador and priests are not, then the church is standing in the wrong place. And I think you see that a little bit differently in the book I, I, I with the, the young priest that he has the tension with in the movie, and then eventually coming to more of an understanding with with them. So I think I think this movie is definitely worth watching and I think the good thing is that people that would have never heard of Romero before heard of him from that movie. My aunt wrote me a letter at one point. She was watching it on television. And she said, I know you tried to talk to me about him before. Do it again now. So I think that's one of the important things with the movie was to make him accessible to people who might not have ever heard of him before. And this episode of the podcast is dedicated to understanding ordained ministries in the church according to liberation theology. How did Romero understand and live out his role as priest and bishop? Well, I want to back up just one second there on the question of liberation theology. He never used that term. He did closely examine the documents from Medellin and talked about the preferential option for the poor. But one thing Rosa Chavez says in these conversations in in this book that just came out is that when the Vatican was trying to decide whether to saint him or not, they were concerned about liberation theology because, of course, Pope John Paul II was originally seeing this all through the lens of his experience in Poland. And they wanted to actually have someone examine all the books in Romero's library and see if there were any liberation theology books. And they found one by Leonardo Boff, but it hadn't, but it was still wrapped up where it had been given to him, so he obviously hadn't read it. So while now I think we can say Romero was practicing liberation theology, he would never have said that. What he was trying to do was to be faithful to the church and protect the church and the people and saw himself. There's the famous uh, quote about that with this people, it is not difficult to be a good shepherd. And then also the other famous quote, both of these are on the Romero Chapel at the at the Jesuit University in El Salvador that if I die, I will be born, reborn in the Salvadoran people. And I think that the way he lived out his ministry, I'm going to use the term solidarity, that I think that he shows that solidarity was not easy, is not easy, but that it's also not optional. So that even though he was being accused of all kinds of things, he needed to continue with that. Uh, another Jesuit, Dan Hartnett, has talked about you have to have solidarity, you have to have emotional and affective, so the the heart, the intellectual and imaginative, the head, and then active, which is the hands. And I think Romero shows that he did all of those. He was he had very much a deep prayer life in deciding what it was that he needed to do and trying to figure out what God's will was, but then also what he as a bishop and as the shepherd 
needed to do for his flock or for his people. But it was his role as the bishop and the archbishop at that point for his people that he was thrust into a situation where he had to act according to that situation and not necessarily a previous plan of what he thought it was going to be like. Before we finish with the interview, I thought it would be interesting to ask about the way that Romero's life has dialogued with your own life. What connections or changes have you seen in your life as a result of your study of Romero? It's interesting that you use the word dialogue. When I was working on the diary, the, the editors at St. Anthony Messenger were referring to him as Oscar, and I was saying, no, I'm not on a first-name basis with him. But I was talking to him while I was working on the diary because there were things that, there were some conflicts with the editors and with the U.S. Catholic bishops that were overseeing the project, and I finally just said, okay, whichever ones of these I need to win, you need to take care of that. You know, then, and I'm going to put this in your hands and not worry about it. And in fact, I haven't actually looked back to see what happened with some of those those questions because I figured if he's a saint, he'll take care of his work being properly properly represented there. But I think I mentioned before that I felt like in the same way that he said he evolved, well, it's a little bit different, where I said I feel like projects have been kind of dropped in my lap, things that I never intended to do, but then all of a sudden they're there, and I think this is what I need to do, this is what I supposed to do. This is the next step in my solidarity. So I think that's where it has affected me. I don't know that I would have asked those questions at all before or felt like my gift for interpreting and translating needed to always be put at the service of solidarity. So I have I've felt like I mean, sometimes I've translated things that have to do with nuts and bolts and whatever, and I say, no, I'm not doing that again. My talents and time are going to go to things that are serving to try to help bring, bring forward the kingdom of God. Thank you so, so much, Irene, for joining this episode. And uh, thank you as well for your life's work in Spanish as a translator and especially as a translator of these important texts uh, making the works of Romero and other works uh, from liberation theologians accessible to people in English. That work is so important. Thank you, David. I want to start the second half of the episode with a few words on the biography of Jose Maria Castillo, the author of our Mysterium Liberationis uh, chapter for today. He was born in 1929 in Granada, Spain, entered a diocesan seminary at a young age, but switched to the Society of Jesus shortly after his ordination to the priesthood. After completing a doctorate in theology at the Gregorian University in Rome, he taught dogmatic theology in Granada until 1988 when he was stripped of his teaching post due to doubts about his orthodoxy. However, he would then start teaching annually at the Central American University, where he filled in following the assassination of six Jesuits there in 1989. And finally, in 2007, at the age of 78, he asked for permission to leave the Society of Jesus for his mental health. 
needing some air apart from a conservative Spanish church that was asphyxiating him. Now Castillo is among the liberation theologians who, though censored by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith under the prefecture of Joseph Ratzinger, have been rehabilitated by Pope Francis, who called Castillo personally on the phone. In 2020, Castillo wrote an open letter to Pope Francis. Would definitely encourage a reading that. And in this letter, Castillo thanked him for the good that the Pope is doing in the church and in the world and called for the church to, quote, stop living blocked by rights and norms from previous centuries, end quote, and to, quote, live by humanizing this dehumanized world weighed down by the suffering of the weakest, end quote. And I think it's important to keep this trajectory in mind as I highlight three theses from his article on the priesthood, the episcopacy, and the papacy. So the first thesis from this important article in Mysterium Liberationis would be that the church has ministers, both for the sociological reason of self-perpetuation and for the theological reason of faithfulness to the work of the Son and the Holy Spirit in the early Christian community. And this thesis is a basic one, but it really gets at the fundamental question of why the church has ministers at all. Why do we need ministers in the church? Why don't we have a totally horizontal structure in the church? And to this very real interrogation, Castillo initially responds rather pragmatically, quote, every human group that aims to perpetuate itself needs a certain organization, end quote. And I certainly could not agree more. In Jesuit life, for example, we have a superior in every community who oversees our common life. And in many houses, there's also a minister, too, who oversees the community's material affairs like food, lodging, finances. And then the superior and or the minister will name individual Jesuits to take charge of specific tasks like laundry, the library, or the garbage system. Here in Paris, I'm the head of the laundry team and also the librarian in the house. And in general, this way of proceeding works very well. It fosters an environment of responsibility, discipline, clarity, and it allows for, I think, both short-term and long-term flourishing. And I recall a conversation with students uh, when I was a philosophy professor at Xavier. We were discussing Marx, and a student objected that nothing gets taken care of when property is held in common. And I responded by using the example of the Jesuit community. Our bathrooms in the novitiate and here in Paris are generally clean, uh, though we, of course, hold our property in common in the novitiate amongst 25 people in my community here in Paris amongst 14 people. And the reason, I would argue, is that we are well organized. And this organization implies a structure of leadership and accountability that makes it effective. The flourishing of a community is not inhibited by common ownership as long as the community is well-structured with a constellation of leadership roles and mechanisms for problem-solving. So there's a certain social pragmatism to having ministers in the church, but there's also a reason that's more theological, and that is because of Christian revelation. The Gospels themselves attest to the naming of an inner circle of 12 disciples who would go on to lead the early church in the Acts of the Apostles. They made important decisions according to the needs of the times. Uh, for, for example, in Acts 15, quote, the apostles and the elders, end quote, of the early church met in Jerusalem where they determined that non-Jews entering the new Christian community did not need to be circumcised, but did have to abstain from eating meat sacrificed to idols. And this meeting 
known as the Council of Jerusalem, is the historical model for synods and councils in the church. Periodically, Christian leaders meet to read the signs of the times in the light of the gospel and to chart a course of action that flows from this time of prayer, community, and deliberation. Another biblical reason for ministries in the church is that Paul's letters attest to a diversity of roles associated with the variety of spiritual gifts that God offers believers. The principal ministries named by Paul are apostle, prophet, and teacher, according to 1 Corinthians 12.28. Paul specifies these gifts and ministries are, quote, for the common good, end quote. They exist to build up the community. They are not to be essentialized. Their purpose is relational and social. So in summary, the church has ministers because it makes social sense and also sacred scripture supports So there's the first thesis, ministers in the church, sociologically helpful, theologically sound, based on revelation. What about a a second thesis? Castillo argues that any ministerial activity in the church should be oriented towards the service of the poor and the liberation of captives. And here's how this argument goes. Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. And the rite of anointing goes back to the early kings and prophets. It was the prophet Samuel who anointed Saul and then David as king. Third Isaiah picks up the rite of anointing in the context of the return from the Babylonian captivity. The prophet announces in the first verses of chapter 61, incredible chapter, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and release to prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall rise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So we see from this beginning of Isaiah 61 that out of the ruins of destroyed Jerusalem, the returned exiles will build up a new kingdom of justice. And it's this section of Isaiah that Jesus uses to define his mission. He reads the scroll in the passage from Luke 4 in the synagogue, and following the reading, he says, quote, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, end quote. What he means is that given the history of Samuel and Isaiah, God has anointed Jesus at the moment of his baptism when he was anointed by the Spirit as the king of a new kingdom of justice that will be good news to the oppressed. We call this kingdom the reign of God. It's what Jesus was about. Jesus was about the reign of God. It's what Paul was about. Paul was about the reign of God with Jesus as its leader. And I, and I say that because sometimes we hear people say that the reign of God is spoken about in the synoptic gospels, but in the Johannine and in the Pauline community, that was not the case. But I think that really, especially uh, if we look at what Paul was going about doing in the Acts of the Apostles, we'll see that very much so he was about the reign of God. In Acts 28, uh, verse 23, we read, quote, From morning until evening, Paul testified to the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus 
both from the law of Moses and from the prophets, end quote. Then in the very last verse of Acts, uh, the same chapter, chapter 28, we find, quote, Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance, end quote. So we see that really this is the closing line of the Acts of the Apostles, uh, so clearly very important. Paul's work, missionary work, was about proclaim, proclaiming the kingdom of God and proclaiming Jesus as the head of this kingdom. So Christianity revolves around a new social organization, which is called the reign of God, which is good news to the oppressed and which belongs to the poor, per the Beatitudes. And so to the extent that there are ministers in this new social organization, their foreness, their end, their purpose should be the same. Like Jesus and Paul, Christian leaders should be ministers of the reign, servants of the social project of the kingdom. Castillo summarizes nicely, quote, any activity of the ministers of the community must be oriented towards the task of liberation. And that goes for the preaching of the word, the celebration of the cult, and the pastoral care of the community, end quote. There is no ministerial activity alienated from the service of the oppressed. This service is its reason for existing. Okay, let's proceed to thesis number three, the true meaning of priesthood. In Christianity is not the performance of a ritual cult, but self-sacrifice for the good of the masses. But before we get into this thesis proper, I think we might take a step back and contextualize the priesthood in Christianity. As Castillo states clearly, quote, in the New Testament, never is the word priest applied to the leaders of the Christian community, end quote. For your average Catholic, this statement may be a bit stunning, but it is true. <laughs> so Paul, for example, describes a plethora of ministries, but priest is not among them. What he does describe is the role presbyter, which has evolved to be what we now popularly call priest. More on this in a second. First, though, back to the priesthood. The New Testament book that speaks about the priesthood the most is the letter to the Hebrews, which describes Jesus himself, not the church ministers, as a priest. However, what is noteworthy is that whereas many Hebrew scriptures refer to the priest as someone who offers ritual animal sacrifices, the Christian letter to the Hebrews conceives of the priesthood as someone who offers themselves as a sacrifice in solidarity with the suffering of the poor. We read in Hebrews 2.18, quote, Jesus had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested, end quote. Jesus suffers with suffering humanity, and this solidarity is what enables him to liberate or save. Castillo writes movingly, quote, No one in this world wants to become totally in solidarity with another, because that can be risky. But to become in solidarity with the last, with the ignorant, with the lost, that is terrible. Yet that is exactly what Jesus did, end quote. Jesus' oneness with the poor is really what marks his public ministry as well as his death. He did not ignore the ignored, did not alienate the alienated, did not reject the rejected. 
On the contrary, in the gospel, it is often the marginalized who are the first to grasp the meaning of the gospel and its bearer, the Syrophoenician woman, the Samaritan woman, the blind Bartimaeus. In a society where the chief priest and his council were in solidarity with the rulers of the Roman Empire, Jesus was in solidarity with those this empire and its local colony were in the process of oppressing. And when Jesus did interact in a positive way with Roman-aligned folks, Jesus did love everyone. He interacted with a lot of different people. The result was, in the case of the centurion, the healing not of the centurion himself, but the centurion's servant. And in the case of the tax collector Zacchaeus, the conversion of Zacchaeus, which involved him repaying the people he had extorted. Jesus was far from a ritual priest of the temple cult. For Jesus, the priesthood meant a self-offering, an offering of the temple that was his body for the weak and the wretched of the earth. Now all of us, every Christian, is called to participate in the priesthood of Jesus in this way. Peter writes in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 9, quote, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The term is royal priesthood, an invocation of a messianic and collective understanding of the priesthood. The new reign is a reign where all are priests who give their lives for the common good as they build up a new social organization that is equitable. This is God's vocation for humanity. God gives humanity the grace to accomplish this project, and this project is God's mighty act in history. We the people are subjects of this reign that we co-create with God by cooperating with the grace we have received by our own anointing, our own baptism. And before getting to any specific ministerial role of presbyter or priest, there is this fundamental, radical, and constitutive sense in which we are all priests of the new heaven and the new earth, and we cannot and should not forget this truth. So briefly, I want to conclude our survey of Castillo's chapter with a bit on the priesthood and the episcopacy derived from the biblical ministries of presbyter and bishop. The term presbyter has the meaning elder or old man in biblical Greek. The term bishop has the meaning overseer or guardian in the biblical Greek. And we can look at the first chapter of Paul's letter to Titus for a helpful biblical citation. Quote, I left you behind in Crete for this reason, so that you should put in order what remained to be done, and should appoint presbyters in every town, as I directed you, someone who is blameless, married only once, whose children are believers, not accused of debauchery and not rebellious. For a bishop, as God's steward, must be blameless. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or addicted to wine or violent or greedy for gain, but he must be hospitable, a lover of goodness prudent, upright, devout, self-control. He must have a firm grasp of the word that is trustworthy in accordance with the teaching so that he may be able both to preach with sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. The gist of it is that Paul is after local leaders who are both morally upright and well-educated in the teaching of Jesus. We note that the early church did not hold to the contemporary Roman Catholic discipline of clerical celibacy. That's a much later development that's evidently not essential to the role, and as such should be debated and updated 
according to the discernment of the church in the contemporary context. And we can say the same about the discipline of an all-male clergy. There are certainly women Christians who fulfill the main requirements of moral righteousness and knowledge of the teachings of Jesus, so gender requirements too should be submitted to the discernment of the church and updated according to the needs and opportunities of our contemporary context. With Castillo's insights in mind, I want to conclude with my take on the Catholic priesthood, given that I am preparing for diaconal and priestly ordination in this last stage of Jesuit formation for the priesthood that we call theology. So what does it mean to be a priest? Castillo says that the church has historically understood the mission of the priest as threefold, preaching the good news, administering the sacraments, and governing a local Christian community. Curiously, each of these missions is not limited to the priesthood in reality. For instance, lay people can and do share the gospel. Lay couples can and do administer the sacrament of marriage to each other. Lay ecclesial ministers can and do lead local communities of believers. So we may not want to define the priesthood in this way. And I think there is a certain clericalism behind this formulation that limits to the priesthood what can and should be done, in fact, by all Christians. Rather, I would say with Castillo that most fundamentally in a first moment, priests are those who, like Jesus, offer themselves as a sacrifice to God by dedicating their existence to the liberation of the oppressed. All Christians are invited to this priestly mission. Then, in a second moment, that respects the sociological and revelation-based need for specifically nominated leaders in a communal organization. Ministerial priests are those who are called by God and put forth by a local Christian community to serve as designated servants of the reign of God with the help of the sacramental grace communicated by apostolic ordination. I am Catholic. I believe in apostolic succession and ordination by way of the laying on of hands, which goes back in an unbroken succession to the 12 disciples of the first century. And I see in this belief great beauty. I see a sign of unity. The project of the church, the project to which deacons, priests, and bishops are ordained is one. When the soon-to-be-ordained person lays prostrate on the ground, when the people of God invoke prayers of all the saints, when the bishop lays hands on the ordinand, when the college of the ordained does the same, when one receives the anointing of oil, there is a total dedication of oneself to the reign of God as a minister of this reign, as a loved sinner chosen by God, also chosen by the Christian community for this purpose. And that's a very good and beautiful thing. Yet apart from the mission of the gospel, which is the good news of the liberation of the poor, it is mostly an empty ritual. The priesthood is a hypocritical ministry, an idolatrous clericalism, if it exists apart from the service of the poor. A priesthood that does not liberate serves the anti-reign, it crucifies. Yet a priesthood that frees, a priesthood like that of Romero, of Air Correa, of Cardenal, that priesthood is the priesthood of Christ, the liberator. And I pray that God lifts up from among the people of God, priests like them, for our day.
Thanks for joining this episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. Let's close with a prayer inspired by the words of St. Oscar Romero. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, let us build up a church that is really side by side with the poor. Let us gradually uncover the genuine face of your suffering servant. Let us come to know closer at hand the mystery of the Christ who becomes human and becomes poor for us. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.